Welcome to the Sifted Podcast. I'm Eleanor, Sifted's Deputy Editor. Amy is away this week on a very well-deserved vacation in the mountains somewhere, hiking. So I'm joined by Sifted reporter, Tim Smith. Hello, nice to be here. Hey Tim, it is a pleasure to have you here in the flesh. Yeah, I'm normally the phantom podcast editor (laughs) who dials in from afar, but it's nice. And we're also in our new office and our new studio, which is draped with towels (laughs) and quite amateurly adhesed foam pads. But hey, it's foam. So for those of you that don't know, Sifted is an online publication that does reporting on Europe's tech and startup sector. And every week on this podcast, we give a peek inside the Sifted newsroom, which now includes this beautiful but kind of DIY new podcast studio. And we discuss the biggest things coming out of Europe's tech and startup sector. We share opinions and we speak to the journalists who are breaking the stories. So on this week's show, we are, as usual, going to be going through some of the biggest news stories of the week in European tech, including reports of a new round of investment for the slightly beleaguered speedy grocery company Gorillas. And later, we'll be speaking to fintech reporter Amy O'Brien about startups that are trying to help young people, but also rich people get on the housing ladder. And finally, we'll be speaking to you, Tim, about your experience heading onto the streets and seeing what life is actually like for food delivery couriers during a heat wave. It's going to get hot and sweaty, so prepare yourselves. But first, what's been going on at Sifted, Eleanor? It's nice to be here in person. It's super nice. Um, We're settling into our new office. Yes, and the studio's in the office, so you might be able to hear some colleagues murmuring faintly in the background, but... That only adds to the drama of this being beamed out of the sifted newsroom, maybe. Exactly. We're in a buzzing newsroom in Shoreditch, which is exactly where we should be as a tech publication. There you go. But yeah, what about Amy's off? You're steering the ship. How's that? It's good. We've had some really, really fun stories this week, including your one about crypto clairvoyance. Correct. Yeah. This was an unusual editorial discussion that we had to go through about choosing a headline that wouldn't offend the online mystic community. <laughs> and actually, it turns out the mystic community was like pretty impressed and supportive of this piece. They right? thought it was quite a well-balanced article, and we should say what the piece was. At Sifted, we obviously try and give you, the audience, what we want, but sometimes we will give you something you have not asked for at all, which was this story <laughs> about... People who claim to have so-called psychic powers using those psychic powers to forecast the crypto markets. So make of it what you will. We do not give out financial advice at Sifted. But yeah, we managed to not piss off the mystic community. And actually we had people excited, right? On Reddit, people were like, wow, like an FT-backed publication is writing about this stuff. This is a great day. Someone did say... F the mainstream media, which kind of shows we've made it. Love it. Gotta love it. Yeah. But anyway, let's get on to the news, maybe, away from the mystics, because we have some big stuff that's happened this week. Our first story we're going to talk about is about Berlin-based speedy delivery company Gorillas, which is set to raise a new investment, has been reported by Business Insider, of $250 million, but at a lower valuation. We have kind of been following this on the podcast at Sifted, Gorillas' woes, as we experienced this tech downturn and they've had layoffs. So how surprised were you? to see that they'd raise this money? I was actually, yeah, I mean, 
It's obviously they've been looking for investment for a long time now, trying to keep the business going. And this is a super capital intensive business because they've got to have all of the dark warehouses or dark stores, right, where they house all of the inventory. They need to pay all the couriers and all that stuff. And they need to have the actual inventory of the items to sell, right? So they do need a lot of money to keep the business going. But I was very surprised that investors, even though we've heard a lot of stuff about, you know, rocky times for this sector in general, it looks like there are investors that are still out there willing to bet on the sector. So you used to work at a VC. Why would a VC double down on an investment like this? Is it to try and patch holes in the sinking ship? So I think if I were a VC now, what I would be telling you is that I have conviction around the consumer embracing convenience. (laughs) And that the consumer is embracing convenience more and that one day everyone will be buying from Speedy Grocery because that's going to be what we're conditioned to do. And other things investors have said to me is that the reason it's attractive is it's such a big market to address like everyone buys groceries so if you can even take like five percent of that market it's still huge right completely completely yeah and i also think like if you think about working parents or elderly people it's more difficult for them to go to the shops this is actually potentially a you know very attractive proposition but that said we are you know well into a cost of living crisis at least here in in the uk i'm not really sure how things are going in spain where you live tim um but that definitely makes a proposition like speedy grocery where you have to pay that delivery fee most of the time on top of that grocery stuff a little bit less compelling yeah you're paying a little bit extra for the convenience at a time when everyone is trying to watch their budget right so it could be tricky and We also reported recently that they were going through about 60 million a month in their burn rate, which seems insane. But, you know, 250 million only lasts you a few months until they'll be back. So it's still fairly uncertain what's going to happen. We shall see. We shall see. But should we go on to a slightly more positive story? Let's do it. So this was one that you wrote, Eleanor, a new early stage investment fund in town. Cornerstone VC. They got £20 million to invest in young startups. Who are they and what makes them different? Yeah, totally. So this was a really interesting raise. Cornerstone is a pre-seed and a seed fund. So they're usually looking to be the first institutional check that these companies receive. They are backing diverse founders and specifically, so they'll be investing in the UK, um, but they also want to spend some time investing outside of London. And so they've said that they want at least 30% of their deal flow to be startups that are coming from out of London. So they want to back diverse founders, but they're quite specific in the ways they define diversity, right? Tell us about that. Totally. So the way that they define diversity is they look at two different measures of diversity. The first is inherent diversity. So that's age, ethnicity, gender, all those things that you can't actually change that are just inherent to you as a person. And given that the team is an all black team, they were born out of a black led angel group. They are going to be focusing on ethnicity for now and then probably opening that up to some of those other inherent characteristics. And then they're also looking at acquired diversity, which includes things like education, the languages spoken, what kind of skills you actually have. Like, are you a technical person or are you more of like the salesperson? It's not just that, is it? They're also trying, they've got this quite rigorous system that they're going to assess founders with. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I think one of the biggest reasons that a 
that is attributed to why VC doesn't back a community of founders that's actually representative of society is that there's so much gut feel and network and kind of, you know, the clairvoyant thing, mystic stuff Mm -hmm. that's involved in these kind of VC decisions and discussions. And the Cornerstone team really wants to take that out, right? Because I think if we're actually going to back diverse founders, then we need to make it a much more systematized approach. And we need to always be improving on our investment approach. So not only are they collecting diversity data on all of the people and founders and teams that apply and ask for capital from them. They're also going to be putting together an assessment, a numerical assessment of all the teams, and then updating that as the team goes through and raises additional capital and all of that stuff to help them move away from this kind of gut feel based approach. Yeah, which seems like it could be a really positive thing. Have you ever heard of this kind of like before and after measurement system of trying to actually work out what makes a good founder? Um, So yeah, actually, I feel like a lot of VCs do collect and systematize data and collect a lot of data about their decisions. I actually wrote about this last year. There are places like EQT, which has Mother Brain. Think about like HAL in a space odyssey, Mm -hmm. you know, a computer that collects data about all of the decisions that they made and helps the team optimize their decisions. So we're definitely seeing a lot of people doing this on a regular basis, but I think people haven't really attacked that when it comes to the diversity angle. And so that's a little bit new. Yeah. And it's really cool to see them going at it with like such a method. And yeah, one more positive story on the fundraising and one startup that is hopefully doing good things for the world is Sarah, which is London based and it's raised $320 million. So it's a big round. And it's a startup that uses technology to try and improve care for elderly and vulnerable patients. There is a care crisis in much of Europe, particularly in the UK. There's not enough carers. The system is crumbling. How is Sarah saying it can improve this? So Sarah raises money. Interesting to note that the money was pretty much half raised in equity and in debt. They have this app where people who are being cared for and carers can connect And carers can input data, for example, about the symptoms of someone that they're caring for so that they can flag when something could happen, which can help avoid, you know, hospital trips and identify symptoms before they worsen. Yeah, which seems like a really good idea. I'm at the stage now where my grandparents are just starting to need care. So the whole family is thinking about that. And I think one thing that we've realized is that it's such an unpredictable scenario when people get that old, you don't know what's going to happen one day to the next. So I think the fact that they're using this technology to try and predict when something is going to deteriorate and catch it ahead of time is something that would be really welcome to families of being like, okay, we at least know that these things are being monitored and hopefully issues will be caught before they get too bad. And, you know, they have some pretty amazing stats on how much they think they can help the health service. What were the stats? So they said the app was able to predict up to 80% of hospitalizations seven days in advance. And so Sarah operates in the UK and Germany, but at least in the UK, we've got record waiting lists for the NHS, right? And so if you can actually help cut down on the number of people that are going to the hospital, then we can make sure that care is redirected towards the people that really, really need it. Yeah, and they said that they the new funding will free up NHS beds and expand our care capacity in the UK by the equivalent of 50 hospitals. So that's a lot of hospitals. Definitely. 
Kai, who wrote the article for us about Sarah, he does a lot of reporting on Health Check for us. And it's he kind of lays it out in the article, but it's really interesting to see a lot more VC money go into what people call the silver economy. So services for older people. Obviously, it is a huge market and still so like underserved in terms of technology. So it'll be really interesting to see what else comes out. So for our first interview of the day, we're joined by our FinTech reporter, Amy O'Brien. She has been looking into a new kind of summer appropriate trend in the land of FinTech, which are startups that promise customers the ability to invest in the housing market, even if they don't want to give up avocado toast and can't afford a whole house. Amy, thanks for joining us. So your piece spelled out the two different kind of classes of companies that are attacking this. Can you tell me a little bit about what those two key different business models are? Definitely. So one is slightly closer to like the timeshare word. They tend to target higher earners, so the top 10% who have like cash to spare on essentially like a second home experience without having to go the full way and spending three million on this house. Whereas the other side are targeting sort of retail investors in general, people of a wider income range. And the idea behind that is, you know, you might not be able to actually buy an entire property yourself, but you still want to be making some returns from real estate. So why not put £100 a month or every couple of months towards a property portfolio that you're going to get some rental income back on? So... Their idea, I guess, to use the classic fintech phrase, is democratizing real estate. They're opening up this fusty old world that was usually the reserve of family offices, etc., to retail investors. Amsterdam-based bricks, confusingly with an X. You can make investments for as little as 100 euros there, and they're seeing quite a few first-time investors do that. But they are still like quite early stage, like yet to fully launch everything. So I guess we'll see how that plays out in terms of people that flock to their platform. So I feel like millennials are resigned to the fact that we are not going to own a home unless we are willing to give up avocado toast and our morning long black. Do any of these companies help solve our housing crisis problem? So I'd say... On a basis level, no, not directly. They're not actually helping you build a deposit or anything really specific like quite a lot of wealth management fintechs are. However, I'd say that the investment platforms are offering retail investors a way of accumulating another source of wealth, opening up this alternative asset class real estate, which has traditionally been quite closed off to retail investors, but gives quite good returns and no matter the like economic environment. So they're opening up a way for these retail investors to get monthly, quarterly returns on investments um, sizes of their choice. So, you know, that might eventually help them save for a deposit, but it's not necessarily directly targeting the housing crisis. But we haven't yet talked about some of the ones where you can actually stay at the residence, where you actually can invest, but you get a chunk of time to spend in the property. Tell me about some of the perks that these kinds of companies give and like a couple of names. Yes, as we touched on earlier, these companies are more focused on the top 10%, the higher earners, the wealthy tech workers among you. London-based Lilo has said that they've invented a new asset class called the Invest and Experience Asset Class. Meanwhile, Berlin-based Mine 
says it focuses on the emotional returns of these investments. So let's talk a bit about these emotional returns. For mine, that me- might mean your favorite wine being stocked in the fridge when you turn up at your property. And by the way, for that property, you're going to need an average household income of more than 100K based on their average investor base. Minimum investments start at 50K. So this is a world away from the 100 euro baseline of the invest-only platforms. Investors on Lilo's platform have to pay a small maintenance fee each month, but they get to ta- like tailor what, what they get at their property um, alongside that fee. So that could mean that your favorite soaps, so you can get your ASOP products, Cowshed or whatever Soho House is using these days, ready for you in the bathroom. And the same goes for mine. So these are really like luxury. They're sort of targeted at like flexible workers who might want to move around different cities. Um, but they also want a little bit back um, in terms of the investment on these properties. It just seems crazy that you would spend 300k for a portion of a house that you can only use for 30 days a year whether or not you got your favorite soap or your favorite wine when you went rocked up to the house i feel like just move outside of london and get an actual house for that amount of money but i rest my case (laughs) and finally we're speaking to you tim who has the honor of being the only sifted employee that's ever made a really sweaty picture of yourself the main photo on the sifted homepage. You were out on the streets, on your bike, getting extremely sweaty. Tell us why. Yeah, this was a bit of an own goal of a piece. Essentially, me and Zosia Vanat, who is our colleague based in Poland now, we thought it would be interesting to look into what the heat waves around Europe were doing for couriers and generally frontline workers who support these tech platforms. So I texted my contact, Asan Ali, who's a courier for Barcelona-based company Glovo, and I said... What's it like having to be out in the heat all these hours while temperatures are soaring across Europe? Like, how is that? And he said, well, why don't you just come with me? So so I did. And yeah, just to give you a picture. So I live in Barcelona, but I have you might have thought I'd acclimatise slightly to the heat, but that is not the case. I just have not got used to the heat at all. So yeah, normally I don't do anything at lunchtime. I will stay in my position, under my fan, under my air conditioning, but not this day. I had to get out on the streets. It was 35 degrees, 60% humidity, which is the real killer, because that's what really makes you sweat and dehydrates you. And yeah, so I went and did two hours of going around, following a sand, doing lunchtime orders. And yeah, it was quite an experience. Tell us a little bit, like, did you get any orders? Did he get any orders? What was it like? Yeah, so I guess we'll come on to the heat after this. But that was one of the most eye-opening things, was about how these couriers try and game the algorithm. Because essentially what they're doing is they log onto the app and then they are ready to work. But that doesn't mean that the app is ready to work for them necessarily. And they have to wait until the app says you have been given an order. Which, in our case, we didn't get a single order for two hours, which means the guy, Asan, is out there using his fuel. He was on a moped, driving around, giving his time, giving his availability to the app and doesn't make any money off it. And, you know, what they'll do is they'll they'll move around from different restaurants that they know are hotspots. And what you'll find is a bunch of couriers at each one. 
But it's not as if it's the first one who's arrived there who will get the order because they don't know how the algorithm works. So what they, they're essentially just at the mercy of this app. And if you don't get any orders, then tough luck because you're not an employee in many cases. So it's a pretty rough time. So in terms of the heat, what sorts of things are delivery companies doing to help you know, couriers during this time? What did Glovo say? Yeah, well, I guess perhaps first I, I met quite a few couriers out in the heat and asked them, how is it? And some of them were actually quite scared. There have been reports in Spain of street cleaners dying in the heat, literally just keeling over because their body temperature is too high. So it's serious stuff. And they read that and then they have to go out and make money. So it's not as if they necessarily have a choice of not being able to go out just because it's hot. They need to get the income. So they were saying that one of them had nearly fainted and fell off his bike because he was suffering from heat stroke. Another said that he's scared every time he goes out on the bike after reading this kind of news. And yeah, we did. We contacted the companies to hear what they had to say. And it was a bit of a mix, but most of them came back with answers like we give advice. We tell them where they can get water, where the nearest water fountains are. Glovo, who these riders work for, said, we advise that you don't do any more than a 10-hour day. And having done two hours out in this heat, 10 hours is a long time to be cycling around in, you know, 30 to 40 degree heat for. So what else do they say? They Do say, they get him any water? We went round to four partner restaurants, and these were like the biggest restaurants that Glovo partners with because they're the most popular ones. And not one of the restaurants offered us water. Glovo does say that it does collaborate with partner restaurants to make sure that water is available to couriers. So perhaps there's something going wrong in the logistics there. But the couriers very much said a bare minimum that we should get is water from partner restaurants, which doesn't seem too outrageous when they're already carrying big rucksacks with food to deliver. On top of that, carrying your own water, it's quite a lot. And the other thing that they asked for was that they thought that a good idea would be to have a kind of bonus fee for working in extreme weather, as they do with working in rain or storms, to incentivize people to work when it's tough out there. Definitely. I feel like this will really, I mean, reading your article just will make me think twice the next time I think about ordering stuff on a really, really hot day. It's a tricky one because these guys still want the work. They're still out there. So you not ordering during a heat wave doesn't necessarily help the riders. So as a consumer, it's difficult to know what to do. One thing would be to tip these guys because as you can see, they're not always making a great hourly rate if they're not getting orders. But I think the big thing that it comes down to is the kind of worker relationship between rider and app, which is really contentious. At EU level, there's legislation coming in which they think is going to give app couriers many more rights in terms of sick pay and holiday pay. And yeah, the issue is, is that these people don't, as I said, they feel like they have to work because they are not salaried. They don't have any guarantee of income. They are just freelancers. And lots of people disagree with that. Lots of riders do like it. But the facts of the matter are, is it's very difficult to provide stable and favorable working conditions if they're not employees and you have no responsibility for them completely well thank you so much tim for writing that super important piece and getting your mug your sweaty mug unsifted
And if you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech and startups, you can find our coverage on sifted.eu. Please don't forget to take our listener survey. It's still in the episode description, along with all the links to the stories we've discussed. If you take the survey, you get a month of free Sifted membership. Sick. And I guess the other thing that I would say that if you want to experience the Sifted vibe live in the flesh from the page to the stage from the page to the stage which is like the best thing ever that i saw someone tweet about this we've got the sifted summit coming up in october and we actually just this week announced some of the speakers big names big names so we've got tom blomfield of monzo fame founder of monzo who's come out of the woodwork this is maybe one of his first appearances since he left monzo right in a long time um and then for you those people in the uk that will have a better knowledge of this person than i did we've got trini woodall coming huge a lot of our listeners are in the uk you may well remember what not to wear i learned a lot of fashion tips from that show as i'm sure you all did come along to the sifted summit to hear how she's translated the sartorial knowledge into entrepreneurial knowledge. It's going to be great. And let us know what you think of the Sifted podcast on Twitter or on email at hello at sifted.eu and join us next week. Bye. Matame.